here, and I, I'm glad so many of you here. This uh, COVID seems to have made its uh, it's having a resurgence, and so a lot of folks I know are sick. So we're glad that all of you are well and you're here today. Um, what we want to look at last time we looked at the cause of conflict. And this morning we're going to look at the cure for conflict, but we'll do just a quick review of where we were uh, in James chapter 4. And we talked about the different kinds of conflict. He talked about fights, which was a state of war, and quarrels were kind of like those individual arguments that indicate something's wrong in our relationships. And basically it all gets summed up in the word uh, discord. And we talked about the fact that man is made up of three parts. We are created in the image of God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when He made us, He made us spirit, soul, and body. And of course, this is one of the reasons I don't use the NIV Bible is because they don't translate the word soul very often in the New Testament. They they thought man was physical and spiritual, uh, the writers who wrote that particular version of the Bible. Uh, But we're spirit, soul, and body, and we need to understand the difference. The spirit is the major part of us. It's the part of us that communicates with God. Uh, The soul is where the battles are fought because that's our mind, our will, and emotions. It's where we think, it's where we feel, and it's where we make decisions. And then the body is the earth suit we're in uh, that we'll one day eject out of when the rapture comes. Now, interestingly enough, for every one time the New Testament refers to body, it refers to your soul three times, it refers to your spirit six times. So, I think from God's perspective, we're about 60% spirit, 30% soul, and about 10% body. The interesting thing about that is, is that that should tell us everything we really need to know about courtship, for example. Uh, The first stage of courtship ought to be focused around finding out if people are spiritually compatible. They need to know if they they both... uh, have the same beliefs and the same theology and they serve the same Lord and they have the same kind of devotion to Christ. And then as they get engaged, that's the time to to plan out where we're going to live, how many kids are we going to have, what kind of jobs will we do, will both of us be employed or just one of us. They figure out if psychologically you're together and then marriage is the only appropriate time for there to be any physical intimacy between you. So if we understand this, we can apply this to a whole lot of things in life. We can also apply it to to music because uh, the early Puritans only sang in unison because they wanted there to be harmony in, uh, in the church. And, and uh, so uh, then harmony in, me- me- in music is what gives us the emotion. It can be a sad, sappy kind of emotion or it can be a bright southern gospel kind of uh, sound to it. And then, of course, rhythm is what makes us want to tap our feet. And so we see that it goes and applies to a lot of things. And we talked about the brain last week and how the brain is different than the mind. The brain is a physical organ. Uh, we make neural pathways through that. We make little uh, tracks to it. And I, I gave the illustration of a dirt road, how that you have a little dirt road you go down to. It was the first time you create a, uh, a new behavior. It's like tracking through the grass. And as you repeat that behavior, uh, the grass turns into a dirt road. And you keep repeating the behavior. It's like having an asphalt road that's really easy to travel down to. And if you keep repeating the behavior long enough, it's like a six-lane superhighway. And it's hard not to go down that road. Uh, I didn't share the illustration, but uh, occasionally when a new movie comes out, and I know my kids are going to want to see it, Judy and I will go to the movie first to preview it to see if it's even appropriate for them to go to the theater and appropriate for them to watch. And So uh, we were doing that one time uh, last year and uh, went to see a movie, and it had some you know, famous uh, actors and actresses in it. 
And um, we went, and I have to tell you that I couldn't get into the movie. And it's not because the movie wasn't well done or it didn't have a good plot. It's because for the entire movie, I couldn't get my mind off of peanut M&M's. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get my mind off of peanut M&M's. And then I suddenly realized that the only time I rate peanut M&M's is when we went to the movie theater and I'd go to the concession stand and I'd get a box of peanut M&M's. And so for two and a half hours, I was driven crazy by uh, thinking I had to have peanut M&M's and not having them. And so I, I missed a lot of the plot. Uh, and I have to, you know, at some point I'll go back and watch the movie. Uh, it's, it's available now on Amazon Prime and I'll catch up on it. But it was interesting to me that I didn't need peanut M&M's. I hadn't eaten peanut M&M's in a very long time, and yet it was that, that pathway through my brain that had been created because every time I went, I had peanut M&M's. It's kind of a stupid thing, but it works that way. And so we talked about how Paul talked that there was a law of sin in his members, that is his flesh, that would have been his brain, all of his sinful habits that he kept going back to again. And, and surely some of you have had this too. One sin that seems to be a besetting sin that you go back to over and over again even though you know you're not supposed to. Uh, And it's a frustrating feeling. Uh, But then he says, but I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord so with the mind, my mind, not brain, but with his mind he serves the law of God. But with the flesh, that's where his brain is, he serves the law of sin. And so there's this conflict that goes on between us. And basically James said last time that uh, the source of our conflict was the hedonistic pleasures of the flesh. Uh, We were pursuing, fulfilling the pleasures of the flesh rather than pursuing the holiness of God. And that's where our problems came from. And he even goes so far as calling us adulterers and adulteresses. And by the way, this is actually, I think, an unfortunate translation in the King James Version because in Greek it just says you adulteresses. There is no adulterers, masculine. It's just adulteresses. Now why would James only use the feminine? Well, because James saw the church as the bride of Christ. And we're all part of that bride. In this sense, we're adulteresses because God is, is the husband of the church. Christ is the husband or the head of the church. And when we follow the world instead of following Christ, we are an adulteress who is uh, leaving or uh, going astray from our rightful head and our rightful authority. So it's very interesting that he only uses uh, adulteresses here. So how much worldly compromise is okay? Well, ask your spouse how, how much unfaithfulness is okay in your marriage. So what disobedience really is, and it's, it's a hard thing to talk about sometimes, but disobedience is like breaking a marriage vow. Uh, when we, we, if you break a marriage vow, that's a very serious thing. It can wind up in divorce. Uh, it certainly is going to hurt someone. Uh, there will be scars that will last for years and years. And yes, I have seen God heal marriages after adulterous relationships, but it's just never quite the same. There's always that, that uh, knowledge, that history, and, and people have to embrace it and talk about the grace of God. But, but we don't really need to think about our relationship to God as in king to subject. What we really need to be thinking about is that when we break God's heart, it hurts Him like it would hurt us, our spouse if we were unfaithful to them. It breaks the heart of God when we sin against Him and when we go uh, and embrace the world and pursue its pleasures. It breaks God's heart because it's like His lover leaving Him. 
That's essentially the analogy that James is giving us, and that's why he calls us adulterers, or excuse me, adulteresses. Well, let's get to the scripture for this morning. And uh, James chapter 4. If you can stand, do so as we, just in honor of God's word. James says, Do you think that the scripture says in vain, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth the envy? And in just a minute, I'm going to read just the start of this same passage in the Lexham English Bible because it has a little different wording that will be helpful to us. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Now let me read just the first part of that here because it's a slightly different translation. It says, Or do you think that in vain the scripture says, The spirit which he caused to dwell in us desires jealously, but he gives greater grace. And the rest of that's pretty much uh, the same. All right, you may be seated. Thank you. Now, we, we need to talk about that word jealous because we have in our society today a negative connotation to jealousy. But jealousy is not a sin. Jealousy is an appropriate emotion. Envy is the sin. Jealousy is protecting what is ours. Uh, I am jealous over my wife. I remember uh, shortly before we started having children, Judy worked for a brief period of time while I was uh, going to school, and she was uh, in uh, worked as a waitress in a Chinese restaurant. Now, the good part about that was, is I would get up there and pick her up from work at night, and the staff would sit down and and eat Chinese food together, and not what they served uh, on the regular menu, but whatever they wanted to eat. And so, I got a lot of good Chinese food while she was working there. It was a fringe benefit. Uh, but I remember coming in one time, and apparently two guys had flirted with her. And I had just walked in and she said, oh, those two guys that left just flirted with me. I went out in the parking lot looking for those idiots. They, they were going to uh, hear a thing or two from me. Uh, why? Because that's my wife. Don't mess with her. Uh, that's, I have a right to be jealous over my wife. Now, that's different than envy. Envy is when my you know, neighbor's got a nicer and newer car than I have and I think, I want that car. Or I wish I had a car nicer than that. It's wanting what I don't have. It's, it's the idea of wishing I could take what somebody else has. That is envy. But jealousy is protecting what is rightfully ours. Well, God calls himself in Exodus 20 and verse 5. He says, you shall not bow down uh, to them. He's talking about idols. Nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. He says, I'm jealous. I, I have a relationship with my people, and I'm jealous because they're my people. Uh, they're, they're the people of my covenant, and I have a right to be jealous over them. And God simply will not tolerate a rival, uh, anything that takes our love away from Him. Moses says of God and the people, it says, they made Him jealous with strange gods. Uh, Moses says, they made, he heard God say, they made me jealous with what is no God. Uh, Zechariah hears God say, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. Now, by the way, the word jealous is kind of a transliteration of the Greek word zealous uh, and, uh, or, or zealos, which has the idea of a burning heat. The idea is that God loves human beings with such a passion that He cannot bear any other love within our hearts. 
He is jealous. He, he is protective of us. And by the way, there is a, a I want to clarify, there's a difference between love and being in love. Now, I love all of you, and that's an appropriate thing. I'm your pastor, you're part of the flock, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. It's appropriate for me to love and care for all of you, and I do, and I think of you in my prayers often. But I'm only in love with one person here today, and that's my bride. I'm in love with her. There's a difference between being in love and and loving. Well, in the same sense, we're to love the whole world. We, We should love people, we should show that love to people, but we need to be in love with Jesus Christ. We need to be in love with God. We need to be invested highly in that relationship like no other relationship. Now, while I love all of you, I am more heavily invested in my relationship with Judy than I am anyone else. And so that, that is, and William Barclay said, this is an interesting quote talking about this passage in James. He says, there's a sense in which love must be spread among all people and over all God's creation, but there's also a sense which love gives and demands an exclusive devotion to one person. It's profoundly true that we can be in love with only one person at any one time. If we think otherwise, we do not know the meaning of love. And I would agree with his statement. Now, James chapter 4 and verse 5 presents us with a translation problem. This is actually one of the most difficult verses in all the New Testament to translate. And it can be translated three or four different ways. I'll show you the the two most common here. If I can get the slide to move. There we go. A very little translation here would be, Or think you that vainly the scripture says to envy, yearns the spirit which was made to dwell in you, but he gives great grace. Now that's a literal word for word translation. Uh, Brother Steve was showing us a, kind of a literal translation earlier from an interlinear Bible. If you ever want to see a good uh, word, a literal translation, there's actually a version of the Bible called the Young's Literal Translation, and it gives pretty much a word-for-word translation. Uh, That's a literal translation, but it it leaves some problems. The first time it refers to spirit, when he says the scripture says the envy yearns the spirit, is that the Holy Spirit or is that the spirit in man? We've got to figure that out. Uh, And the yearns, is, is, is that what the spirit does or is that the object of the yearning? In other words, does God yearn after our spirit or is our spirit yearning for something? Uh, is envy here to be an unrighteous desire? Uh, and this, the King James translated it envy, but the Lexham English Bible translated it jealousy. So we kind of need to figure out, is this an inappropriate emotion or is this an appropriate emotion? And so uh, the two possible translations, the spirit who indwells you jealousy yearns for you and it gives you more grace. Or it could be the human spirit which indwells in you yearns to envy, but he, God, gives more grace. Two totally different meanings, both appropriate translations. So what we have to do is look at the context when we have a difficult translation and determine what was in James' mind when he was writing this. Now, James' readers had allowed their desires for God and their desires for the idols of the world to wrap them up in a total conflict uh, in their desire interpersonal relationships. In James 3, it says, instead of bridling their tongues, they allowed their tongues both to bless God and curse man. And and James says, my brethren, this ought not to be so. Uh, Instead of pursuing the wisdom from what's above uh, that... uh, counsels humility and peace, they had allowed the wisdom from below 
to dominate their aspirations. And James contrasts the heavenly wisdom from earthly wisdom in chapter 3. And so this movement of the will back and forth between different worlds of desire and deed is what's in James' mind as he's writing these words in James 4. Now there's really no pneumatology in the book of James. Pneumatology is the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, essentially. James' reference to the Spirit here is probably not the Holy Spirit, but he's talking about the Spirit that God breathed into man during creation. Genesis 2-7 when it says, The Lord God formed man in the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul or a living spirit. Uh, the human spirit is what that part of us, as I mentioned, that communes with God. It's the part of us that has a relationship with God. And, and it's the one that adulterates itself if we pursue idols. And an idol, by the way, is anything that gets in place of our relationship with God. Anything we elevate to the foremost part of our heart. So the most natural understanding of spirit from this verse then is the human spirit. And the King James probably has it right here that our spirit is hardwired by our sin nature to want to yearn or envy after stuff we don't have. Uh, We try to fill the gap in our hearts that's meant for God with things of the world. And that's why everybody out there is pursuing for more of this and more of that. Uh, And and by the way, this leads to clutter, by the way. We, we, We hold on emotionally to stuff that we don't need. Um, and if we really don't need about 50% probably of what we, most of us have. Uh, so the good news is, is either way we translate this, we're going to come out at some useful truth. If we say the Spirit of God living in us desires jealousy, a relationship with us, then that fits well with the context of Him calling them adulterers uh, because God has a right to be jealous over us because we belong to Him. Uh, but the other translation, and I think this is probably the correct one, our human spirit is wired to lust for what we do not have, and that's envy. And this points out this dichotomy. We're supposed to fix our affections on Christ, but the problem James, and remember James is, James is calling them out. He says, you adulterers and adulteresses, or actually in Greek, you adulteresses. He just calls them that. He, he quits calling them brethren. He gets kind of sharp-tongued here as pastor, and he says, you adulteresses, don't you know? And so I think this is the appropriate translation. Don't you know that our human spirit is wired to envy? Uh, We're pre-wired by our sin nature to love the world instead of love God. Now, there's some good news, and and maybe we could do a synthesis, and this is just my own opinion. Uh, We shouldn't try to synthesize things usually just to make everything work, but I think this time it does. The Holy Spirit of God, this is my suggestion, the Holy Spirit of God desires jealously a loving relationship with us where we are faithful to Him, but our depraved human spirits prone to seek the hedonistic pleasures of the world and a search for fulfillment in this life, making us spiritual adulteresses. Now, by the way, that's actually synthesizing several verses together because he, he already told us the source of our conflicts was the hedonistic pleasures. He's telling us here that that uh, God wants to have a relationship with us, but we're adulteresses because we're prone to seek the world. But again, I think that James' tendency, our focus is on the tendency of the human spirit to want what we don't have. Here is a great translation by William Barclay, and I, I love, instead of saying adulteresses, he has an interesting phrasing here, renegades to your vows. 
Remember I said that when we, uh, when we start loving something other than God, it's like being unfaithful to our marriage vows. So I think this is his idea. I love this translation. Renegades to your vows, do you not know that love for this world is enmity to God? Whoever makes it his aim to be the friend of the world thereby becomes an enemy of God. Do you think the saying of Scripture is only an idle saying, God jealously yearns for the spirit which he has made to dwell within us? But God gives more grace. That is why the scripture says God sets himself against the haughty but gives grace to the humble. So then submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And I don't think there is a thing wrong with that translation. I think it's a perfect translation that certainly befits the meaning of the passage. I don't think he's doing what I call eisegesis which is reading something into the passage that's not there. It's a beautiful translation. Now, the good news is, is even though we're wired to have our spirits pursue what it shouldn't, there's an antidote for this. And, and the, in, there's a, you know how when you, you get a, a drug that a drug company makes, maybe it's an antidote for something, that there is usually multiple chemicals inside the antidote, but the antidote goes by one drug name. Uh, and so that's kind of what we're doing here. In general, the name of this antidote is the grace of God. But we're going to get into the specifics of how you you make up that antidote in a moment. But it says, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resist the proud, but gives grace to the humble. By the way, that word resist is better reflected in the Lexham English Bible. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So grace is our general attitude antidote to this hedonistic, pleasure-seeking mindset that mankind has. Now, by the way, you notice it, it keeps saying uh, the Scripture says. Uh, it says it is, is it in vain that the Scripture says that he lusts after us jealously to envy or something like that? And it's real hard to find a verse that's like that. I think it's probably Proverbs 3.34 he has in mind. It says, surely... He, or, or, Oh, excuse me, this is the verse about God gives uh, uh, grace to the humble but resists the proud. Proverbs 3.34 says, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he gives grace unto the lowly. Uh, or with those who scorn, he is scornful, but to those who are humble, he gives favor. And so I think that's where this reference from, comes from, that he, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's a frightening truth here, though. And that truth is, that if we're proud, God resists us. And literally, He stands opposed to us. Now, I'm sure we've all had our share of enemies in life, and uh, maybe some more dramatic than others. Uh, I still remember the first real enemy uh, I ever faced. His name was Michael Hicks, and he was uh, in the fourth grade class of Eastside Elementary in Jacksonville, Texas. And I don't know why, but this kid just took a disliking to me from day one. And uh, we were out one day playing baseball on the, on the field during the, our athletic portion of the day. And uh, Michael decided when he had the bat in his hand, rather than swinging at the ball, he would swing it at my head. Hit me in the head. I had a big old goose egg and... And uh, Michael Hicks made it on my try-to-avoid list just about instantaneously. I later, because God was faithful to even show me as a fourth grader, 
uh, his mercy, I later had a chance to find out that Michael Hicks uh, didn't have a mother, lived at home with an alcoholic father, and he had a really bad life. And I, I took a totally different view of Michael Hicks. I felt sorry for him. I felt compassion for him. And I, I'm glad God let me, let me see that and, and learn that lesson early in life, that sometimes we, we just need to show love toward those people in, in, in a way. But uh, I, I'll tell you that uh, feeling of love was not instantaneous on that baseball diamond that day. Uh, and I, I've had other enemies. Sometimes they're kind of mock enemies, like when I took martial arts and you have to spar with someone. And uh, I remember sparring with my instructor one night, and I actually got a hand on him. And that was a big accomplishment to get a blow to the chest of my black belt instructor, but it only ever happened once. Uh, so you, you don't do those things very often. But one enemy we don't want because a lot of enemies are more formidable than others, but one enemy we don't want is God. You don't want God standing opposed to you, because there is no more powerful enemy. And, and, and sadly, any of us, even though we're the children of God, if we get proud and arrogant, the Heavenly Father can resist us. He can oppose us. And He does so, I think, out of love, because He wants to show us that we're not going to get by pride what we should be getting through grace. Uh, by the way, that word proud, huperfanes, means to show oneself above others. It's an attitude of arrogance. It's to look down upon others like, like you're higher than, than they are. Um, fact is, if you remember Goliath's brothers, uh, we're told about in the Old Testament, one of his uh, brothers was a fellow by the name of Ishbi Benok, which means in, in Hebrew... My dwelling is higher than others. In other words, he looked down on everybody. And he was uh, killed by one of David's valiant men named Abishai, which means I'm shorter than others. Really rather an ironic pairing, uh, as it were. But the, we've got to have this antidote to this pleasure-seeking hedonism that's built into our depraved uh, nature because God's opposed to those who are opposed to him. And we don't want him as an enemy. It's a frightening truth. Uh, earlier in James' letter in, in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, he talks about his opposition to the proud. He, he, he cautions them. His man comes into your assembly and he's wearing fine apparel and you make him sit in the prominent place and then somebody comes in and they, they aren't cleaned up as well and their apparel's not as nice and you, you make them sit in front of the the rich guy, so the rich guy can use the, the poor guy's back for his footstool. He says, you know, are you then not partial in yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts? He says, you, you have become someone full of evil thinking. So James has touched on this before. God hates pride. He hates anyone that thinks they're better off. Now, by the way, this is worth writing down. There are three ways that pride shuts us off from God's grace. First of all, pride doesn't know its own need. If you don't admit the fact you're a sinner, you'll never ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. That's why we have Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've got to understand that and we have to recognize, hey, I'm that sinner. I'm that person that has violated the very laws and the righteousness and the holiness of God. It's why I'm separated from Him for all eternity. We... People full of pride admire themselves so much they don't recognize any need 
to be supplied. And I've got a couple friends that I don't consider them arrogant, but I do think that they think their life is sufficient as it is. That uh, they don't need God because they don't really believe in Him and they think that they're just good moral people. No, we're not. There's not a one of us that's good and moral enough to get into heaven without Christ. Here's another reason. It cherishes our own independence. And I think this is a reason that probably the two people I have in mind right now, I don't think they're Christians. And I think it's because they don't want any exterior force determining how they ought to live lives. They, they've, they've got their own plan. They've got their own schedule. They've got their own set of morals. And they don't want anybody else telling them that what they're doing is morally wrong or morally inappropriate. Uh, and that's why a lot of times if you've got a family that's dedicated to you know, uh, godliness and going to church, maybe teaching their kids at home because they want them to learn scriptural principles. They make other people uncomfortable and, and people kind of look askance at them and look down at them simply because uh, they feel uncomfortable about their worldliness. And our job, by the way, is not to make the world comfortable. It's to, it's to show the world that there is a better way of life. That's what we're really about. That's why we don't need worldly entertainment in a, in a church service. Well, a lot of us just want to be independent. We don't want somebody else telling us where to go, what to do, how to do it, when to do it, and, and what our morals should be. And yet that's exactly what God does. The nice thing, though, is if we'll listen to Him and obey Him, we get His blessings, and that's worth it. Well, here's another problem with pride. It does not recognize its own sin. It's kind of like, well, I'm, I'm good and I'm good enough. And if you weigh my life in a balance, it's, it's, it's going to come out that in, in my favor. By the way, this is all what Islam is. Islam believes that if you do more of the good things than the bad things, that when Allah weighs you on the scale of justice, he'll find out that you're worth coming into heaven and my question to any Muslim is, how do you know where the scales tilt in the eyes of the Almighty? By the way, Allah is not the same God that we worship. Uh, he was actually named after a moon god <laughs> that the Sumerians had. Uh, so we need to understand, you and I will never know how the balance tips, whether it tips in our favor or not, but guess what? Isaiah chapter 40, uh, Brother Steve quoted from Isaiah 41.10 this morning. In the chapter just before that, it says that uh, God weighs the mountains and the hills like the fine dust on a balance. That's how awesome he is. But it also says, it, it basically the idea is all of our goodness it doesn't even <laughs> outweigh the dust on the balance. And the reality is, is that it only takes one sin to make us a sinner. It only takes one sin for us to need a Savior. I think we can all agree that we've had at least one sin in our life, right? So we've got to recognize our sin. A pride, a person full of pride can't receive help because that person doesn't know they need help and therefore it can't ask for help. But a humble spirit gives us grace. It says, but he giveth us more grace. Wherefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I, I love the fact that we can get God's grace instead of His opposition. And that's a, a, what I call a no-brainer choice. Uh, it's a no-brainer choice. I, I remember years ago I, I had an uh, opportunity. My, my boss called me in and she said, 
uh, Baptist General Convention of Texas would like to hire you away from us, and, and they pay $25 an hour, and the job I had only paid $6.25 an hour. That was what I call a no-brainer decision. I didn't have to think long to decide whether I wanted to make $6.25 an hour or $25 an hour. That was an easy decision. Well, this is, do you want God opposed to you or do you want His grace? Well, that's an easy decision, right? So James calls us to shun pride, submit to God's authority. And so the cure for our conflict, conflict is a spirit that's rewarded by God's grace. Now, let's get into the specifics of the antidote. And these are, there's nine things here to write down. And what I want you to see here, uh, I've got some Bible software, and I have programmed the software to automatically highlight imperative verbs. So whenever I pull up a passage, it automatically highlights all the imperative verbs with that kind of uh, ragged edge uh, red font there. So I want you to see in these verses, submit, resist, draw nigh, cleanse, uh, purify, uh, be afflicted, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning, and humble yourselves therefore in the sight of God. There's ten imperatives in this passage. Uh, James, by the way, uses more imperative verbs than almost any other Bible writer in terms of number of imperatives per, per page. So well, I want us to look at those, and these are worth writing down. This is how you get God's grace in your life. God wants to give it to you. Now the question is, how do you avail yourself of it? Uh, first of all, you have to humble yourself. That's maybe the first and most important one uh, because he says, Hearken, this is James 2, 5, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath God not chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to them that love him. And this is talking about the humble poor that might come into your assembly. We've got to admit our own spiritual poverty. Um, in the Old Testament, when, when King Saul informs David that he wants to make him his son-in-law, uh, he sends his servants to King David, and the, and the king's servants tell David, hey, you need to come to the palace. He wants you to marry his daughter. And David's reply was, Seemeth it to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing that I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? Lightly esteemed means little known. He says, I, I'm just a poor shepherd. Uh, boy, and I'm, I'm lightly known. You think it's a small thing for me to be the king's son-in-law? Uh, he had a humble attitude, and that's a good thing. Second thing you need to do, you, you have to humble yourself, but you also need to submit to God. Um, kind of like a magnet, the call for commitment has a positive pole and a negative pole, or a north pole and a south pole. One is submit to God, and the other half is resist the devil. Well, to submit is a military term that means to, to be subordinated to uh, authority, to arrange yourself under that authority, to render obedience. Uh, you know, there's certain people that you, you salute when you're in the army, and there's certain ways you respond. And when the, when the uh, sergeant major gives a command, you say, yes, sergeant major. In fact, as you say it rather loudly, I won't do that here for you. But you learn there's a chain of command, and that chain of command is important. So you have to be submit uh, to God. Get under His authority. That would mean, by the way, God's got a lot of different structures for authority. He puts authority in our homes. He puts authority in our church. Uh, Hebrews 13 says, 
uh, that we're to obey them that have the spiritual authority over us, for they must give an account for our souls. There's government authority. We often don't like those people, but we are to show them honor and respect for where they're at, and we're to obey them as long as they don't call us to disobey Scripture. Uh, there is authority in our workplace, and I have to uh, follow the instructions of my boss, whether I agree with him or not. But we need to submit to God. That's the, the thing. And then the, the, here's the other side of that coin. We need to resist the devil. Now, it's a big comfort, actually, to know that if we resist the devil, he kind of acts like a coward and he flees from us. That, that's pretty amazing. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. You ever thought about that? All, all the devil has to do is have a little resistance and he runs. And by the way, there's only one temptation I can find in the New Testament from which we are to run. And that's where Paul tells us, flee fornication. Because that kind of temptation is so strong, you don't stay around it. If there's an immoral picture, an immoral show, uh, someone uh, of the, uh, making a pass at you and it's not your spouse, turn tail and run. Don't stay around and quote scripture. Uh, don't, don't say, okay, well, you know, this uh, defrauding person is right here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote Romans 6 while I still stand here. Don't do that. Run. Then go quote scripture. You run from that. But every other thing, scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In a book called The Shepherd of Hermas, the author wrote this, we can, uh, the devil can wrestle against the Christian, but it cannot throw him. Oh, I like that. The devil can wrestle against the Christian, but he cannot throw him. And this is a, a truth of which New Testament Christians and writers were fond. Peter essentially says the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. By the way, interesting thing is lions don't roar when they're pursuing prey. Lions are, you, you ever watched a cat stalk up on something and then pounce on it? Lions sneak up in the grass and then pounce without making a noise. The only lions that roar are the old ones that can't catch the prey anymore. They go out and roar so the gazelles will scatter and run in a certain direction and they run in the direction usually of where the young lions or the lionesses are waiting. And they kill, and then the old lion comes, swats a paw around or two, and then he eats his share. Uh, so in other words, Peter's using a, an interesting analogy. He's basically saying, hey, the devil's a roaring lion. He tries to make you run in fear. He tries to get you to do these things, but don't fall for it. Uh, it's a really interesting Resist. The devil. And by the way, of course, what is the best example we have of resisting the devil? It's Jesus Christ himself, uh, who quoted scripture every time he was tempted by Satan. Interestingly enough, he quoted scripture from the book of Deuteronomy every time tempted Satan. You know, and by the way, please don't ever think that the Old Testament, we don't need it anymore because we're New Testament Christians. If Jesus quoted from the book of Deuteronomy every time he was tempted, it wouldn't hurt for us to know what's in that book. And, and uh, we can put him to flight. Christians, have a, we need to have the humility that we, we, we fight our battles with the tempter with strength that comes from the Word of God. Here's the fourth way we appropriate God's grace for our lives. Draw nigh unto God. I don't know if you've ever thought of it, but the greatest privilege we have isn't to be an American. 
or it isn't to be married to the spouse you're married to. Those are great privileges, I assure you. But the greatest privilege that you have is we have access to God. Do you know that in the Old Testament, the only people that could come into the presence of the physical manifestation of the presence of God were priests? And for example, Exodus 19, 22, And let the priest also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. So in the tabernacle, when you had that Shekinah cloud of glory going up and down, only people that could come close to the holiest of holies, the only, only person that could go to the holiest of holies was the high priest, not only on one day a year on Yom Kippur, but the only place that people that could get into the holy place, which is right in front of the curtain where the Shekinah cloud of glory was the manifestation of God's presence. It was only the priest. They were the only ones that could get close. The only other person in the Old Testament that really got close to the, the glory of the Almighty was Moses when he's up on top of Mount Sinai. But it was the priest that did. Now, this office of the priest was to come to before the Lord to ask God to forgive the sins of the people. It says in Ezekiel 44, 13, They shall not come near to me to do the office of priest unto me, nor to come near to any of my holy things in the most holy place, but they shall bear their shame and their abomination which they have committed. In other words, don't, don't think you can bring an offering to God directly. You've got you to go through a priest. You have to have an intercessor. And of course, we know now that Jesus is our intercessor, so we have something new that they didn't have. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have a privilege Old Testament states didn't have. I don't have to have an intercessor. I don't have to have a priest. I don't have to go to some church that practices sacramental theology and have somebody pray over a cup of wine before they offer it to me and somehow that communicates the blessing of the Holy Spirit to me. I don't have to have a priest who, who sprinkles water on my head when I'm a baby and somehow or other that automatically saves me. No, I get to come, uh, first of all, to Jesus for salvation and after that I have access to God the Father anytime I want it. I can draw boldly before the throne of grace. Uh, there was a time when only the high priest could come in the, into the holiest of holies. But now Hebrews seven nineteen says, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope, talking about Jesus, did, by which we draw nigh unto God. So we have a, this is a blessing, but we have to draw nigh unto God. And James even promises, draw nigh unto God, and he'll what? He'll draw nigh unto you. He'll draw near unto you. Uh, how do we do this? Well, I think one of the best ways is to open his word, read through it, and as you get through each verse, pray that verse to God. Ask God if that verse applies to you. Have a dialogue with him. The only way you get close to somebody is to spend time with them. Now, I don't know how much time you spent with your spouse this week, but I, I'm guessing that you probably haven't spent that much time with God this week. Make it a point to spend more time with the Lord, not just in church, but during the week too. It's, it's a beautiful thing when you do. Draw an eye to God. Then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. And then it'll follow this with purify your heart, you double-minded. The two almost go together. I look at cleanse your hands as saying we need to have right actions. And I, I look at purify your hearts as we need to have right attitudes. But cleanse your hands, and in, in, um, usually that used to refer to that ceremonial washing that they had, uh, the Jews had before their meals. We read about in Mark chapter 7. It was a ceremonial washing that they had to do all the time. 
The big thing is James is saying that Christianity is not just passively participating in what Christ did for us and it's not passively just receiving stuff. We have to be intentional about something and we have to be intentional to make a moral effort. In other words, not a one of us is going to leave here today and automatically be righteous the rest of the week. We're going to be faced with choices and every time we have to make a moral decision uh, to do right. And so his appeal, by the way, he says, cleanse your hands, you si- <coughs> excuse me, you sinners. The word hermartalos, which is the word, by the way, there's a couple different words for sinners in, in the New Testament. This is the word that refers to a hardened sinner, the, the one whose sin is obvious and notorious. He says, you need to cleanse your hands. You need to cleanse your actions. Uh, a 10th century scholar who compiled several works of reference says, hermartaloi, are those who choose to live in company with disobedience to the law and who live a corrupt life. Pretty good definition of, of sinners. So what does it mean to cleanse your hands? Again, it was a ceremonial thing. Exodus 30, if a priest went in the tabernacle, he had to stop at the labor. He had to wash his hands and his feet before he went into the tabernacle proper or they would die. That's a big deal. You didn't want to skip the labor on your way into the holy place. You had to wash your hands. Uh, now, it's interesting, though, that as time goes on, people begin to realize the ceremonial washing of hands before you go in the tabernacle, before you go in the temple, is really just a picture of something. So David says in Psalm 26.6, I wash my hands in innocence. In other words, it's a figure of speech. It, it, came to, it came to mean moral purity. It's no longer just washing your hands. It means to be morally pure. Uh, Isaiah 1.16 Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil. He says, it's all about your actions. So cleanse your hands, you sinners, means get rid of your wrong actions. Now, by the way, I'll take a, a brief moment here because there's four ways in the Old Testament I find that God wants us to cleanse ourselves. One is He wants us to cleanse our lips. Y'all remember the vision that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6 where he saw God high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and the, every time there was a, a voice that spoke, the, te- the doorpost or the post of the temple uh, moved and there were the seraphim that cried out, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Seraphim means burning ones, by the way. And Isaiah sees all this and he says, Woe unto me, for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then a weird thing happens. An angel goes over with tongs, takes a hot coal from the altar, and comes and touches Isaiah's lips with it. Now I don't know how many of you have barbecued with charcoal briquettes before, But let me tell you something I'm pretty sure of is you don't want to put a hot charcoal briquette on your lips. And I think there's something strange about this passage because what we don't see anywhere in those verses, and they're right there on the screen for you to look at, you do not see the word, ouch! That's kind of unique, isn't it? You know why? It's because the pain of removing our sin from us was taken on the cross by Jesus Christ. It didn't burn Isaiah's lips. It was the sacrifice Christ made that cleanses us. But we need a cleansing of the mind. That is to say, it's not a, we, 
what's in your heart will eventually come out your mouth. And we need to clean up our talk by asking God to also clean up our heart. We should have our words and our deeds to be purified. And that's what's both important. By the way, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, the pure in heart shall see God. That's, that's what I want. There's also a cleansing the hands. We've already mentioned this. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul into vanity nor sworn deceitfully. Part of Psalm 24, it talks about who is this king of glory and it talks about the king of glory shall come in and it says who shall see this king of glory? He that hath clean hands and a, and a pure heart. The hands are your actions. The heart is your attitude. And then the cleansing of the heart. And again, I've mentioned this. It's to repent of your wrong thoughts and attitudes. It's to ask the Spirit of God to change you, to transform you. Romans 12, 2 says, Be not conformed to the world, but be you transformed by a renewing of your mind or your heart that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Um, we have to cleanse our heart. And, and then the last cleansing I find in the Old Testament is this idea of cleansing your mind. Here, and of course, in James 4, 8, Draw nigh to God, He'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. James said... You people are double-minded. You say that you love the Lord, but your real affections are set on the world. The real affections are set on your hedonistic pleasures. You're pursuing those when you ought to, pursuing, you ought to be pursuing obedience to Christ. That's the real thing to pursue. So the result of cleansing our actions and our attitudes is it will fix our double-mindedness. And how, we need to be careful that we're not like the Christians at Ephesus and Jesus said about them, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee that because thou hast left thy first love. And that's the problem with Ephesus, and that's the problem we get. It's so easy to go to church on Sunday, but very quickly in the week slip back into where Jesus isn't first place in our life. We, we get up and we go through the whole day and we never read the Bible. We get up and go through the whole day and we never had a word of prayer with him. Uh, he needs to be a part of our everyday life. Then, back to our, our list of things to do to appropriate the grace of God, we need to purify our hearts. This is those attitudes. It's that Romans 12, this idea that we need to be transformed by a renewing of your mind. Then we need to be afflicted. Now, this is kind of a weird one. None of us think, oh, I want to be afflicted today. Uh, the, the Greek word that's used there that's uh, a form of taloparane uh, the Greek historian Thucydides used it this way. He says, the experience of an army whose food has all gone, they have no shelter from the stormy weather. In other words, he said this condition is someone who has no resources of their own. They, they don't. And, and what, what James is, by using this word, James is saying, you need a voluntary restraint from lavish luxury and excessive comfort. And by the way, if God's blessed you with a nice home, no problem with that. God blessed you with a nice car, no problem with that. He blessed me with a 2000 Subaru, I love the thing. Uh, no payments, and, and so far not a whole lot of maintenance has been a good car. Uh, but whatever God's blessed you with, it's appropriate for you to have it if you can be thankful for it, and if you didn't have to get it by a method he didn't approve of. Okay? Uh, but we need to quit seeking out luxury uh, and making that our goal of living. Is that what we're living for? He's talking to people in love with the world, and he's pleading with them, don't make luxury and comfort the standard by which you judge life. Because there's a whole lot more life after this one. 
In fact, this, this life's not even a drop in the bucket compared to how long we're going to live on the next one. It'd be a whole lot better to send as much of our riches onward to heaven as we could before we get there ourselves. It's discipline that produces the scholar. It's training that produces the athlete. It's wise abstinence that produces a Christian who knows how to use the world and its gifts correctly. I, I'll tell you from observation, I've known some wonderful, sweet, effective Christian couples that were very happy that never had a complaint, never had an evil word to say about anybody, and I'd look at their lives and thought, oh, I want to be like them. And one thing I've always noticed about them is they lived what I call quiet lives of moderation. They weren't always looking for the next thing. They learned to be content with what the Lord had given them, and they lived lives of moderation, and they never wanted for anything. Be afflicted. And then this one, and I'm actually combining three different imperatives in one thing here because they're so similar. He says, mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning. The idea here is there's no room for merriment when we look at how we've been unfaithful to God. And there's no room for merriment in joking about the pleasures of the world when we're not spending time with God. We ought to exchange merriment for mourning and gaiety for gloom. And This doesn't mean that James thinks you ought to go around gloomy all the time. Nobody needs a gloomy Gus, and that certainly wouldn't be a good representation of Jesus Christ. But what he is saying is that we need to be so humbled by our own sins and so distraught on how we have hurt the heart of the God who loves us that we weep. If you've, uh, I've counseled people before where one or maybe both of the partners have gone through adultery and you can see the tears in the eyes of their spouse as they talk about it. You can see tears in the eyes of the person who has had to confess his or her sin and admit to the wrong relationship because they recognize what a stupid thing it was to live for that hedonistic pleasure in the moment. As one fireman told me one time, he, he watched a lot of his fellow firemen at the, the firehouse where I worked as a chaplain for a while. He'd watched a lot of them commit adultery. And he says, you know, I would not trade five minutes with another woman for 25 years I've had with my wife. And I thought, well, that's a good way to sum it up. It's a good mathematical way of, of looking at things. But the idea is we need a contrite heart, a heart that's sorry over our sins, a, a heart that hurts when we've hurt the heart of God. And, and, and we need to imagine how we would feel if our spouse was unfaithful to us and realize that's how God feels when we're unfaithful to Him. That's exactly how He feels when we're unfaithful to Him. We need to feel sorrow for how we've heard the heart of God. And that, by the way, is true repentance. Uh, a lot of people have this idea that repentance is just saying, well, I'm sorry. I remember a number of years ago in a church, actually the first church I pastored, uh, I, I honestly believe the youth director did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It was a woman. She came up there. She was youth director before I got there. Her big thing was to arrange volleyball games. And, and it came to a point where they were outside playing volleyball loudly on Wednesday night while we as a church were in a prayer meeting, and it bothered people. They thought, well, don't they need to know how to pray too? Don't they need to hear God's teaching too, rather than just coming up here to play volleyball? And I went out and I confronted Angie with this fact, and I said, you know, 
I'm glad you're doing this for the kids. I know they're enjoying it. I think it would be a good idea if they would join us for a few minutes of Bible teaching and prayer and then come out here and play. Well, she lost it. She went ballistic on me and said all kinds of things, said some words I won't repeat. She ran off a little bit later that night. It was probably 9, 10 at night. Judy and I are sitting in the living room of our house just kind of reeling from her reaction. And all of a sudden the door burst open, no knock or anything, door burst open and Angie pops in and she says, well, I'm sorry. And there was a little part of me that thought for just a minute, yeah, you kind of are. You know, that's not asking forgiveness when you say, I'm sorry. The way you ask forgiveness is say, you know, God has convicted me that I was wrong about this. Will you please forgive me? You need to ask for forgiveness, not say, I'm sorry. Well, when... We need to get to the place that we ask God forgiveness and we are brokenhearted because we know that we've broken the heart of God. We need to feel sorrow. That's what real repentance is. Now, I, I like the wording on this slide. How grievous morning turns into a joyful morning. A little play on words there. But James here is really describing the first step in the Christian life. We can't begin the Christian life till we get sorry over our sins and ask God to forgive us John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, he and Charles Wesley, and really an incredible family, he was preaching to the miners in Kingwood, and history records that they were moved to such grief over their sins that tears made streaks as they ran down the grime, the coal, the coal grime on their faces from when they'd been mining coal. But it's no, by no means the end of the, the Christian life that we just walk around in, in tears all the time. That terrible sorrow of sin moves us toward the thrilling joy of being forgiven. It's so nice to be forgiven. If you've ever been forgiven when you've asked for forgiveness, it's a good feeling to know that that person no longer holds that uh, against you. And, and the, these... Self-satisfied, luxury-loving, unworried hearers of James are being confronted with their sins. They should be ashamed and grief-stricken and afraid because that's the only way they'll ever reach out for grace to give them a joy unspeakable and full of glory. I love that song, by the way. And here's the last one I'll do. And again, I lump some together, so we at nine instead of ten. But humble yourselves in the sight of God. Humble yourselves in the sight of God. Only the humble can know the blessings of God. What are the blessings that come from humility? Well, the Bible says salvation. Job twenty two twenty nine. When men are cast down, then thou shalt say there is lifting up, and he shall save the humble person. We have to be humbled to be saved. We get honor. Proverbs twenty nine twenty three. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Then there's revival from having God's presence with you. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that's of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. He says, I'll be with them and I'll revive them. Y'all ever feel like you need revived? Just refresh. Some of you are thinking, I need that after this sermon. But, you know, we need to be revived. We need to be in the presence of God. And then exaltation. And this is what a lot of people don't understand. 
We don't get exalted until we've been humbled. Matthew 23, 12, Jesus said, Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Humility comes before honor. Humble yourselves, therefore, in God's sight. Now, next time, we're, we're going to see that if you follow these imperatives, it prevents another big sin we can get into, which is the sin of judging others. And uh, unfortunately, that's a big sin for Christians. It's often a big sin of homeschooling families. But it's a sin that many of us get into of judging others, and we're going to talk about that next time. But I want you to think back as Brother Steve comes and leads us in a song through these things to avail ourselves the grace of God. We need to humble ourselves. Uh, We need to uh, cleanse our hands and our sinners. We need to draw nigh unto God. We need to resist the devil. Uh, We need to transform our minds with scripture. Uh, We need to uh, draw nigh unto God so he'll draw near unto us. And those are the things that we need to be doing. And maybe now would be a good time. If you can think of something in your life that has kind of stepped in between you and God, a pleasure maybe you're seeking that's kept you from being as in love with God as you should be, this would be a good time to join me at the altar and pray and let Jesus know that you want him back first place in your heart. Would you stand, please? 82, nearer, still nearer.